So I'm Ed Griffin-Egan. I'm one of our pastors at my church, and I'm not Jeff. I've got to tell you something. <laughs> I hope that wasn't recorded. Um, I just tell you, last night, and I don't remember what time it was, 7, 8 o'clock maybe, I got a text message. Um, Cinnamon and I got a text message, and it was a picture of, and I wish we had it up there, but it was a picture Jeff was in South Georgia with his son at a wrestling tournament, and he actually came in third place and made the state. But um, So we get a picture of a van in South Georgia that said, Meat Slangers Barbecue. And the text to me and Cinnamon was, call these people and see if we can get them for Easter. And then at 3.19 a.m. this morning, I got a text from Jeff that said, scratch the idea of meat slangers barbecue because I'm violently ill. And I told him I wasn't going to make a big deal out of it. So I'm not, making a, I'm not making a big deal out of it. But he, in fact, is sick from don't eat barbecue out of a stolen van in South Georgia is probably the, <laughs> the moral to the story. Um, so anyway, I am, uh, my name is Ed Griffin-Hagen, and I want to talk to y'all for a minute this morning. And it was funny, too, because at 319, my phone started going off. And at about 320, and I didn't hear it, about 326, my wife shot me an elbow to the ribs and said, if it makes one more sound, I'm going to slash your throat. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, anyway, um, so I want to I I give you a short passage from the beginning of Matthew, uh, Matthew's first book in the New Testament. This is chapter 7, actually, it's not the beginning, it's chapter 7. It's verse 7. And verse 7 says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And what Jesus says, he says the door opens for those who knock and those that seek are going to find. He doesn't say you may find. He says you, you will find. And I believe everything inside of me. I believe that, that truth is what is on the other side of that door. So last summer... I had the opportunity to speak a couple of times, and I, I told y'all little snippets, bits, and pieces of my story, and today I want to tell you the whole thing, and I want to talk to you this morning about uh, about a crazy, crazy change of heart that I had 14 years, one month, and 11 days ago. At the time, my oldest son, Zach, was nine, and my youngest son, Will, was six, and he was starting first grade, and my relationship with my wife, Susan couldn't have been any better or I didn't think it could have been any better um, from all outward appearances we had just a normal middle class sort of life and we were we were happy and I, I grew up in Columbus I was born and raised here the son of a transplanted Yankee West Point infantryman graduate and a, and a woman who came here from Germany in 1937 she was about six, my mom was about six months old when they, when they came. In fact, most of my mom's family died in Auschwitz and Theresienstadt, two concentration camps during World War II. And so one night in 1937, early, early in 1937, the Nazi, my, my grandfather had a, like a dry goods store in, uh, in Mannheim. And the, as the Nazis were rising to power, they came in 
threw whatever through the windows, burned his store down, and it was pretty much uh, he realized that it was time for them to leave, and if he was gonna if he was gonna get out, now was the the time to get out. So we fast forward a little bit. Um, actually, I guess we fast forward a lot. I was born on September eighth, nineteen sixty five. So however many years that is. And eight days later, on the 16th, I had a brit milah, which is a, a ritual circumcision. And it wasn't just a ritual circumcision. It was a sure enough circumcision. Um, and that comes from uh, Genesis chapter 17. I want to read you two verses in Genesis chapter 17 where that comes from. Uh, it says, He who's eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generation. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who was born in your house and he who was bought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. This event signified my entrance, and it signifies every male Jewish child. It signified my entrance into the, the covenant, the Jewish covenant community of the Lord. And so I grew up in a conservative and in, in Judaism, you have, it's not a denomination, but let's, for lack of a better word, let's use that. Reform, conservative, and orthodox. And the orthodox are the, mo are the strictest. The, the orthodox came from the Pharisees. If you see on TV or in a movie, the guys wearing the black hats and the sideburns and all, they're Hasidic, but they're actually orthodox. Um, so I grew up in a conservative, kind of middle-of-the-road Jewish home. But my parents kept kosher, which is... a uh, reasonably strict adherence to the dietary laws in Judaism. We didn't uh, eat meat with milk. We didn't eat pork. We didn't eat shellfish. It's everything in Leviticus about how to, how to eat uh, that was in the house. But we would go have pork barbecue somewhere as long as it was outside of the house. We just did so. And, and looking back on that, I think how utterly stupid that, that is. Um, but as a Jewish child, I attended Sunday school, and Sunday school in a synagogue in, or in a temple is different than Sunday school in a church. It's for three hours. You learn, it's a cultural thing. You learn the Jewish culture. You learn rituals. You learn all the traditions. I don't really ever remember cracking a Bible, but we learned all the stuff, the, the, the ritualistic stuff. And then I also went to Hebrew school, which is like Sunday school on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4 o'clock to 6 o'clock. Uh, in the afternoon, same thing, culture and all that stuff. And I also attended Sabbath services on Friday night and Saturday morning because in Judaism, the Sabbath is from sundown Friday night till sundown Saturday night. <clears throat> Most of the services were in Hebrew. And, you know, you're, we learned how to sort of read Hebrew, but I never learned to understand it actually till about 10 years ago. So in the service, most of it was in Hebrew. You don't even know what you're saying. So looking back on that, I thought this is absurd because we're singing and speaking in Hebrew, but nobody knew what in the world they were saying. So I vividly remember the first football game of the 1978 Pioneer Colts Junior Midget Division. Uh, I was 12 years old. It was a Thursday night before my bar mitzvah. Anybody know what a bar mitzvah is? Um, the, the, the words mean son of the commandment, and it's a Let's say it's a coming of age. It's a, a, you are now a man. That's probably a good way to say it. You're now a man after you have your bar mitzvah. And you, you end up 
leading a worship service on a Friday night, you read from the Torah, which is the, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. You read from that, and then you read from an ancient commentary, and you give a speech and all this stuff. And so the night before, it was Friday night, the night before was opening day of the 1978 Pioneer Colts Junior Midget Football Division. And we were playing the Edgewood Red Devils. And I don't know if any of y'all are from here, and y'all have any kids that play youth football, but Edgewood don't play. And so, and I played quarterback, and our coach let me call my own plays, which was a mistake, because the first play was a quarterback sweep on to the right, and the second play was a quarterback sweep to the left, and the third play was a quarterback sweep to the right. Well, God probably got me for doing it three times in a row, and I was a pretty fast little Jewish kid, and I was flying down the sideline, and six or seven big Edgewood Red Devils just snot bubbled me on the sideline and I landed in a heap and I had a, got a compound fracture of both bones in my left arm and it was just a horrible mess it was really nasty and it was a horrible mess my dad walks down from the uh from the bleachers and just it's the day before my bar mitzvah now and my mama didn't want me to play in that game um but my dad looks down and he looks at this twisted up mess of my arm and he just kind of shook his head but I had a bar mitzvah to attend to on Friday night, the next night. And I had just messed it up, and I had got a new suit and all this stuff, and I couldn't wear my suit because I had this cast that went from my hand up to my shoulder. And my sister's boyfriend, actually fiancé, was a Hasidic Orthodox Jew from Brooklyn, and he was there for the weekend for my bar mitzvah. And so I really couldn't do the Friday night thing. He did the Friday night thing for me, but on the Saturday morning, I'd, I did it. And they had to cut the sleeve off my coat, off my uh, jacket, because um, I had to perform. It's a performance thing. So I'm up there on pain meds with my arm packed in a really a big bucket of ice. The whole cast and all was down in a big bucket of ice. But the show must go on. So my dad said, suck it up. The show must go on, right? So my mom and dad instilled I got an older brother and older sister and they instilled a strong strong set of morals and values and ethical do's and don'ts and rights and wrongs they instilled that in us and I realize now that all came really from from Old Testament scripture from the law in the Old Testament I was in a Jewish youth group I went to Jewish summer camp I was in a Jewish attorney at the University of Georgia I was really Jewish it was I don't know if that's the right word but I was really Jewish and and as a Jew the New Testament or really Jesus in particular weren't an issue I wasn't taught that he was not the Messiah I didn't even know what Messiah meant I, I literally had no idea what the word meant um, we weren't taught the New Testament was wrong I didn't even know what the New Testament was I didn't know there was such a thing as the New Testament it just wasn't an issue I grew up believing like a lot of people that aren't Jewish grow up believing that if there was a heaven and I acted okay then I would be there I don't know what okay means but if I acted good or right or behaved or didn't get spankings or I don't know but if I acted right and there was a heaven that I'd be there my viewpoint on in fact I thought anybody that wasn't Jewish was a Christian absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt that's what I thought and I thought that anybody that was a Christian could live however they wanted to live as long as they accepted Jesus. And I didn't even know what that meant, except Jesus. I, I didn't know what that meant. Um, 
I thought if a, if a Christian shot my mama and said that they were sorry, then they were okay. And in my simple mind, that just couldn't possibly be right because in this world, you get what you deserve, right? You get what you deserve. So I met my wife, Susan. Uh, she was a freshman in high school and I was a junior. She grew up at Edgewood Baptist Church and we dated for a bunch of years. And when I was a senior in college, I asked her to marry me with one stipulation, and that was that she converted Judaism because my mom and dad said that we needed to both be Jewish so we had kids, that they would be raised in a home with one religion, that, that uh, they would be raised Jewish. And so she agreed, and she went through a year-long conversion, which was an academic thing. It was not a heart thing. She learned about the culture. She had the cram course that I did for 15 years or whatever it was. She got the cram course and she learned all the rituals and all the, um, all the traditions and all about the culture of the Jewish culture. And then we were married in 1988. And for the first few years of our marriage, we were members of a conservative synagogue and then we ended up joining a, a reform temple and we attended the services on Friday night sometimes and on Saturday morning sometimes. And we went for the holidays, because you got to go for the holidays, and there's lots of holidays in Judaism. But during, during, during that time, those first years probably of marriage, Judaism began to, uh, and I can tell you right now, Susan didn't convert to Judaism. Susan passed the test at the end of the day, which literally there was a test. She had to sit before a, like a panel of old Jewish men, and they asked her questions, and she passed. And so we could get, we were allowed to get married. But anyway, I don't know what happened. It's like the Judaism, the Jewishness, the whatever the word is, sort of started to fall by the side. Maybe it started to become a little unimportant maybe in our lives. It didn't quite maybe feel right. Um, and I believe in God. I never stopped believing in God. Um, I believed what the Old Testament taught. I believe what the Old Testament teaches today, absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt. And Zach, our oldest son, was born in 1992. Will was born in uh, 1995, and time passed. And we just tried to raise our kids the best way we knew how, teaching them strict right and wrong, just like my dad taught us. Um, and our kids went to Sunday school when they were little, just like we did, um, and like all the other Jewish kids. And I just kind of put my questioning stuff on the back burner, and we just tried to move on. But then, uh, January of 2001, I decided that I wanted to believe because I wanted to believe what was true. I wanted to believe. I didn't want somebody to tell me what to believe. Um, I wanted to know the truth. What, whatever was true, that's what I wanted to know. And I told Susan, I said, I want to I know what's true. And I said, I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe I end up a rabbi. Maybe I end up a monk. Maybe I end up an atheist. Maybe all this stuff is a bunch of junk. And it's emotional garbage, and, and none of it's true. But whatever it is, I'm going to figure out somehow or the other what the truth is. Probably, no, not probably, for sure. There was something inside that said, I want to prove that Christianity is a fraud. I want to prove that, that, uh, that Jesus is just another in a long line of prophets in the you know, 2,000 years ago that claimed something that he really wasn't. It's just all big, one big conspiracy. And I knew there was no way I was going to end up believing this stuff. But I said, the best place to start 
was in the Bible, on page one of the Bible, not page 75 or something, on page one. And off on that quest I went, and I opened up the Bible that my uh, parents gave us for our wedding. And it is just the Old Testament, um, because it was a Jewish Bible, and a direct Hebrew to English translation, reasonably hard to read. I ended up buying a, a new international translation and kind of was reading them both. And when I read something in the NIV that I thought, hmm, they're trying to get me. I'd go back to the, the other Bible to like, as a proof, to see if it was really said what it really said, because I knew them Christians were trying to coerce me into something. And it was back and forth, you know, back and forth, back and forth. <clears throat> and I, I thinking that religion is subjective, uh, which is, both of those things are stupid, but thinking that religion is subjective, I was trying to be as objective as I could be. Um, I had never read the Old Testament, much, ne much less the New Testament. And while I was reading the Bibles, I was reading all kind of other books uh, by Jewish scholars and by Christian scholars and Josh McDowell and Ravi Zacharias and some Jewish guys and all these other books, reading little bits and pieces of it. And it was an obsession every single night, starting in January of 2001, every night till probably 2 or 3 in the morning. And when I finished the book of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, it just seemed like it, that cannot possibly be all there is to it. So I decided to, to read on and read the New Testament, which I really couldn't believe that I was getting ready to do. But I ju it just couldn't be over. And one passage, lots probably, but one passage particularly really stuck in my mind, and it was in the book of Jeremiah in chapter 31. I want to read this passage to you. It's three or four verses. But Jeremiah 31, he said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here's the kicker. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. It didn't say I will remember their sins until the next sacrifice. It didn't say I will remember their sins until the next Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement once a year, where the high priest in Israel would cover the sins, you know, kill a goat or something, and, and, and take care of the sins for that year. No more means no more. No more means it, we ain't got to do this anymore. And Jeremiah wrote this. He says the Lord declared that a new covenant was coming. He didn't say that God is going to exercise an option on the old covenant. He says he's going to write a new covenant on their hearts, and it's going to live inside a believer. It's not going to be external. It's going to be internal. God's saying through Jeremiah that he's fixing to get in the heart-changing business. And that passage just so stuck in my mind. And during this, whatever, 10, 12, 13-month investigation, into religion, I started getting feelings that I never thought I would have. 
And the best explanation I can probably come up with is it was a gradual buildup of factual belief in my head that culminated in really in a passionate conviction in my heart. And I thought I was blown away. Could I possibly, possibly start believing this stuff? And, and I was convinced that every word in that Bible, every single word is true. Every single historical fact that is in there happened both Old Testament and New Testament. And I began to understand that I was looking at this whole Christian thing wrong. It may just be about getting exactly what you don't deserve rather than getting what you do deserve. Every one of us deserves to go straight to hell. So this whole thing may be about getting what we don't deserve. And that, makes no, that just makes no sense to me. But this Jesus guy may... He may really be for real. And so after reading the Old Testament and after reading the Bible and after reading the Old Testament, I saw this pattern of Israel jacking stuff up all the time and God reeling them back in. The whole book of Judges is one cycle like that. They'd mess up, he'd reel them back in. They'd mess up, he'd reel them back in. And it's almost like God said, look, y'all keep jacking this whole rules thing up, these commandments, and there's 613 of them in the Old Testament. They must be impossible for anybody to keep so I got this, and I'll take care of this sin thing one time. It's exactly what Jeremiah said in verse 34, chapter 31. I'll take care of this sin problem one time, period, uh, and it's over. And it doesn't mean the law is bad. Paul wrote in Romans, bad or abolished or done away with. That's not Jesus didn't. He specifically said he didn't come to abolish the law. Um, and Paul said in Romans 7, uh, verse 7, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So, so what, the, what the law allows me and you to look at the man in the mirror and see just how weak we really are. It points me to my desperate need for a Savior. It points me to my desperate need to be redeemed and my desperate need to be saved. And a few minutes ago, I told y'all that the truth is what's on the other side of the door that Matthew was talking about in chapter 7 of Matthew. And I believe that knowing the truth is more than just knowing, um, knowing a set of facts. You can't be convinced of the truth. You can't be coerced into believing the truth. Like I thought I was reading this Christian Bible and it was going to coerce me into believing something that wasn't in the Jewish Old Testament but you can't be you can't be convinced of of that. You can't you gotta want to know it, and you gotta you gotta love it, and you gotta want to know that it is true, whatever it is. Anybody that wants to know the truth and is willing to see and hear it and know it, they'll know it. But I can't I can teach a kid how to play football. I can teach a kid how to run it, and I can teach a kid how to tackle, but I can't teach a kid how to want to. That's got to be inside of you somewhere, which is the same thing with the truth. And a guy named Dan Cardia wrote a book it's called uh, A Matter of the Heart. Uh, and in that book, he said, knowing the truth is not a matter of intellectual enlightenment, mental capacity, or reasoning power. It's a matter of the heart. And so about 13 months later, in the middle, late at January, I guess I was by myself, and I just, I realized 
two things about believing. I realized that I did. It wasn't like I struck by lightning, but I realized that I believed every single word in the Scripture, and I believed that every event that is depicted in the Scripture happened. In history, in time, it happened. Well, I had that knowledge. Um, I believed it was true. There's another component of believing, though. Biblical belief has a trust component. And at the same time that I believed that Jesus Christ died on a cross and three days later was resurrected, that it happened in history, I put my trust in him. And the belief without the trust is just, so I'm a Bible scholar, big deal. You, that, that trust has to be there. And so all of that soul searching kind of culminated in a, in a honest to God, honest to, to goodness, the heart just changed. That day, everything looked different. It's like I took a, a cloudy set of glasses off and I put a crystal clear set of glasses on and everything looked different. My wife looked different. My life looked different. My mom and dad looked different. My kids looked different. Work looked different. Every single thing when you view it through a biblical lens is different. Doesn't mean life's going to be a bed of roses, but everything looks different. And I heard, I had a buddy that teaches at a big university. And a couple of years ago, <clears throat> at a conference, their yearly conference, a world-renowned professor came to speak at their conference. And he spoke for two and a half hours. It's a big university. It's, so the guy spoke for two and a half hours establishing proofs that the resurrection never happened. The professor quoted scholar after scholar after scholar, and he quoted book after book after book. And he concluded that since there was no resurrection, then Christianity fails if there's no resurrection. He said Christianity is groundless if there's no resurrection. He said it's emotional. These are the words he used. It is emotional mumbo-jumbo because it's based on a relationship with a risen Savior that never rose. And after about 30 seconds, an elderly pastor in the back of the room stood up. You know, woolly white hair, um, stood up in the back and he said, Dr. Professor, he said, I have, a, I have one question. And he reached into this sack lunch, because they all had to bring sack lunches to this thing. He reached into the sack, and he pulled out an apple, and he started eating the apple. Crunch. He said, my question is really a, a simple question. Crunch. Now, I've never read any of those books that you're talking about. Crunch. And I've never heard any of those scholars you know, wonderful, wise scholars that you're talking about, crunch. He said, shoot, I can't even read Greek. Crunch, and he finished the apple. He said, all I want to know, Dr. Professor, this apple that I just ate, is it sweet or is it bitter? And the, the professor, Dr. Dude, kind of looked, you know, professors will be condescending. He looked down his, you know, little glasses at the, at the pastor and he paused for a minute and he said, uh, he said, I couldn't possibly answer that. He said, I hadn't tasted your apple. And the old man dropped the apple core in the bag. And he looked at the professor and he said, neither have you tasted my Jesus. 
That's a true story. So this is a Jesus thing. He is truth. He is grace. He is love. He is life. He is real. He is a game changer. You cannot gaze on the very face of God and come out unaffected. It it is impossible for that to happen. I mentioned that I, that I thought 14 years ago um, that truth was subjective. Truth's not subjective. R.C. Sproul, who's an awesome Christian writer, he said, truth is that which conforms to reality. Truth is reality. Jesus Christ is who he says he is, or he is not who he says he is. He either died on a cross and rose, or he didn't die on a cross and, ru- and, ri- and rose. And if I don't believe it, or if you don't believe it, it doesn't change the fact that he died on a cross and rose. I've had that conversation so many times with friends of mine. I don't care. If you don't believe it, it still happened. And if it didn't happen and you believe it, it didn't make it happen. It took me nearly 40 years of my life to realize that every word in that book is true and that those events really happened. It took me 40 year, nearly 40 years of my life to gaze upon the very face of the Lord. Don't let it take you another day if you hadn't. Don't. I had a friend of mine die two weeks ago, lost as a goose. Don't let it go another day. John 3.16 says that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Taste just a little bit. Just taste a little bit. Repent. Peter's sermon at Pentecost, the first sermon of the New Testament, right after Jesus ascended, the, the folks asked him, what do I do? Repent and believe and seal the deal. He didn't say seal the deal. Repent and believe and seal the deal so that you know that you know that you know that you will be with the Lord for eternity. Y'all pray with me. Father, we love you today. We thank you for your grace. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. Lord, we thank you for for dying on the cross and, and loving us when we were right in the middle of, of being unlovable. Father, thank you for, for rising. Thank you for coming out of the tomb. Lord, because without that, then the whole thing would be meaningless. <clears throat> Lord, I lift up our church to you. Father, I pray that somebody that's never gazed upon your face today will be the day that they will do it. Today will be the day that they will say that cross happened, that grave happened, and I trust in him. And Lord, I lift this up to you in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, bro. So, now is the the time that we uh, we worship uh, through an offering. And if you're a guest with us today, just be a guest. Don't feel any pressure. We would love for you, though, to fill out a connection card. Let us know that you were here. And, and, and I pray that if you said yes to that offer, that you said, I do believe that, and I do trust in him, 
that you'll fill that out on the connection card and just let us know. We're not going to stalk you. We're not going to show up at your house with apple pie. We just want to know, and, and we probably will call you. Um, if you don't want us to call you, write that on there too. But we just kind of want to know so at, the, at a minimum we can pray for you because you got to know that every uh, our staff prays over those cards. Our staff prays for y'all every single week, and you, you really do need to know that. So I'd invite the host teams up, and uh, we're going to worship with an offering, and, and I want you to know something about the money. God don't need your money. He doesn't. But it's a trust issue, and it's an obedience issue, and there's something about, I don't even know what it is because I don't understand it. There's something about trusting him with everything. I'm going to trust him with this. I'm going to trust him with that. I'm going to trust him with other thing. I'm going to trust him with my finances as well. And there's something, and, and it doesn't mean that you're going to trust him and you're going to tithe. And when you wake up tomorrow morning, there's going to be a new Mercedes Benz in your driveway. That Show me that in the scripture. That's not going to happen. But there's, it's a, it is a trust issue. I will trust him with my life. I will trust him with my kid's life. I will trust him with my wife's life. And I'm going to trust him with my finances. So that's, what, that's what this is about. And, it, and, and I know that this is an awkward conversation, but it is a trust issue. Um, so let me pray for the offering, and then we're going to jam again here for a couple minutes. Lord, again, we love you. Lord, we trust you. Uh, we trust you uh, with all of everything that we have, all of our stuff. Lord, we trust you with our finances and our lives and everything. And Lord, I pray that you will take this offering, you'll multiply it a gajillion times, and you'll use it to grow your kingdom so that your kingdom uh, just covers the earth. And, uh, and we, we know that you're coming back soon. Don't know what soon means, but we know you're coming back soon. Lord, and so let us use this offering to, to further and grow and enhance that kingdom. Again, in Jesus' name.